Hi, everyone. FYI, this episode of Silvacast is being recorded virtually. It is a pandemic, after all. So please excuse any funky audio issues. You know what I mean. Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. Our goal each episode is to bring you discussion, ideas, and information you can use as foresters and land managers. I'm Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your hosts for today's show. Hey, Brad. How you doing? Hey, good. How are you doing? I always ask that question every show. Yeah. But would we would we really say if we were doing poorly? I don't know. We don't I have mean, enough time. I, I don't to, we don't have enough time to go uh, there. I know. I know. So, I'm okay. So, Brad, I have a quiz for you today. All right. And uh, and no, this this isn't a drinking game. So let's not even go there. I know that you work or have worked in southern Wisconsin for quite a long time, and so yep. I want to ask you this question. What would you say is the average volume of saw timber growing in most upland oak stands in southern Wisconsin? Take a guess. Nope. Too late, Greg. You said saw timber. So. (laughs) Okay, I'm back. So uh, if I were guessing saw timber, I would say, well, that's a hard question, you know, because all sites are different. But my experience, and, and we'll have, We'll have Tom, Han, Tom Hill on later, so he'll be able to give us an assessment. But I would say three to 5,000 board feet per acre, somewhere in that ballpark. Okay. I think that's a really uh, reasonable guess. And I was curious about this. So I went into our public lands inventory system. We call it Whispers. And I looked up the average volumes. This is on public lands, mind you, of oak stands in southern Wisconsin. And I got four to 6,000 board feet per acre for stands with a site index greater than 55. So you're pretty much on the money. It's in the ballpark. So what got me thinking about this was I was looking at an old study, and I know you know this study, Brad. Um, It's by Gavorkians and Schultz, and it was done in 1948. And it's got a big long name. It's called Timber Yields and Possible Returns for the mixed oak farm woods of southwestern Wisconsin, but it was done 72 years ago and they took 385 inventory plots across southwest Wisconsin in oak stands that they considered had above average stocking, so they weren't degraded. And so guess what kind of volumes they averaged in those stands. Oh, Greg, you know, I know that study, but I can't remember it offhand. Um, But I know with with a name like Gavorkians, that's got to be good, right? So it's got to be, <laughs> it's got to be a good study. So, uh, I don't know, 8,000, 9,000 board feet per acre? Um, no, they got a whopping fourteen to 18,000 board feet per acre on average in those old stands. Holy, that's, that's a lot. For site indexes greater than 55. Wow. Have you so, seen many sites like that? Have you seen many stands I, like that? I can count on one hand the number of stands that I've seen that have more than 12 or 15,000 board feet. Yeah. There's yeah. not not a lot. I haven't seen many. So, and there's a lot of reasons for that, I think, but um, my point is 
um, that especially in hardwood stands, there's a lot of our upland hardwoods that aren't living up to the potential productivity that they are capable of doing, um, at least from a timber standpoint. And so we would call those degraded, right? So yeah, as I said, there's a lot of reasons for that, but, but many of them are what we would consider degraded. Uh, there's some that just have lower stocking, but they're still well managed and they have quality timber. Uh, but as we know, there's a lot of them that have a lot of poor quality timber within them. And we yeah. would consider them or most foresters would consider them degraded. Yeah. And there, there are a lot of ways that you can be degraded as well. I mean, you could. So you think about that definition. It's got to be really encompassing in order to fit all the stuff that we would consider mm-hmm. degraded. So we have ecological and we probably want to set that aside right now. Right. Because we could have a natural community that's different yeah we're really talking more about like you said a site that really doesn't live up to its its potential for say stocking or quality or things of that nature yeah so it's timber productivity yeah yeah let's narrow it to that yep yeah and and that reminds me you know because you and i know uh we're good friends with wayne clatterbuck from tennessee and he kind of talks about he's got a publication where he talks about these And he kind of says in his publication, he says, a result of past practices, degraded hardwood stands usually contain trees that are crooked, rotten, or diseased, are of undesirable species, are physically damaged from previous logging operations, and are not growing at a satisfactory rate. But he also goes on to say that degraded stands also contain patches, which can be really variable as well. So these sites are Mm -hmm. not only degraded, but then they're really variable. So they can have too many or too few trees, and you can have regeneration or non-regeneration of desirable tree species. So it just makes them really hard sites to work on. Mm-hmm. I think that, as you said, the definition can be broad and uh, there's different ways a stand can be degraded. And I think we'll talk a little bit more today about um, our experience and our guests' experience with what, what they've seen out there in terms of degraded stands. I know Wayne's uh, publication that you're talking about. I think it's called Treatments for Improving Degraded Hardwood Stands. Yep. Um, and, and Wayne actually gives some thresholds in there uh, from a basal area standpoint as to um, the amount of acceptable versus unacceptable growing stock that would sort of uh, make a judgment that a stand is degraded and needs rehabilitation or maybe needs total regeneration. So those are some guidelines I know that he's put out. It's for Southern Appalachian hardwoods, but I think in the ballpark, it's applicable up here too. Yeah, it's with a grain of salt. I mean, in general, you know, he's looking at a different part of the country, but in general, I think it would apply here. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, shout out to um, our friend, Dr. Wayne Clatterbuck, if you're listening. Uh, sorry about all those headaches we gave you when Brad and I were <laughs> your students for NASP. We're not so. sorry, Greg, at all. Yeah. We're not sorry. Those are well-deserved headaches that we were yeah, there. Yeah, I can hear. I can hear Wayne rolling his eyes right now. Yep. So anyway, why don't we get into talking with our guest today? All right. So today on Silvercast, we're going to talk with someone who is in the trenches doing this work. Today, we're going to visit with Tom Hill, a Wisconsin DNR forester has worked on both public and private forest lands here in Southern Wisconsin for more than two decades to find out some of the approaches he has tried to put these stands on a better track. So, but don't forget, Brad, our, uh, one of our favorite segments of the podcast right. is but the first, sponsor. But first, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by High Grade Industries, when only the best will do. 
Oh, Brad. Um, oh, yeah. You were you weren't supposed to. We yeah yeah yeah. That that sponsor got cut. Remember? All right, that's yeah. right. Okay, so today we have no sponsor. Okay. Welcome to Silvercast, Tom Hill. How are you doing? Doing good today. How are you guys doing? Hey, good. Good to have you on, Tom. Yeah. Hey, so. So maybe, so we know you, but the audience doesn't. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your, uh, your career as a forester. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I've been with the Wisconsin DNR for about 28 years now. I started back in 1993. I came, actually came into the DNR to run the nursery in Boscobel, um, mm -hmm. the tree nursery. And uh, so I grew trees there and was the, the nursery manager, superintendent for four years. And then I had the opportunity to go back to the woods, which kind of was where uh, my first love was so yeah I did that and went uh, working in the woods here in Iowa County I've been there ever since 1997 so 23 years or so you know it seems like just yesterday but obviously it's not but. yeah you've had a lot of really good you've been a mentor for a lot of really good young foresters in your time haven't you some really really good ones some really good ones yeah like <laughs> you okay I'm laying that out there so Tom was my mentor when I was first hired so he set me on the right track it was all's good yeah. yeah, it was all good. Yeah, it was easy. <laughs> we don't know about that, but it was it was fun no matter what. It was. Yep, it was. Tom, in the interest of, as Brad said, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm going to tell you I lost your pink squirrel, and I'm not talking. And I'm not talking about the cocktail either. <laughs> I'm going to have to tie you up a few more. So th that would be great. If that worked really good. Yeah. So, you got you can't fish without in Southwest Wisconsin without the pink squirrel. So right. Brad and Tom have been introducing me this summer to the method of hopper dropper with a pink squirrel technique on fly fishing. So well, it's been good. Tied tied with squirrel hair from southern Wisconsin forests, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That makes it even better. Yeah. So Tom, we don't in any way want to imply that we only have uh, degraded stands around here uh, because this part of the state can really grow really, really good trees. In fact, I think probably some of the best red oak and white oak we see in, in this part of the upper Midwest probably comes out of southern Wisconsin. Um, but it, Iowa County, a lot, a lot of people probably aren't familiar with Iowa County and southwestern Wisconsin. What are the woods like and where you work? Yeah, so for sure, I mean, we, we do grow tremendous quality hardwoods and some of the best walnut in the entire world is that part of that hundred mile radius from Dubuque, Iowa, and we're right in the heart of it. But the, I think your, your professor, Wayne, was it Mr. Clatterbuck? Is that yep. his name? Yep. He, he described more than half of our stands, you know, half our forest with his description of degraded, degraded stands. So hmm. yeah, we have a stands that are soils that are capable of growing some of the best hardwoods in the country, but due to past practices, I would say more than half of those, more than half that ground isn't 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 growing trees of that capable to its capability. Yeah. What what are the reasons you think our these stands aren't growing up to their potential? Yeah, so I think, you know, when you actually boil it down to it's it's a it's a whole multitude of things, but it starts with past grazing. These things were grazed a lot. It starts with just probably destructive logging is number one, the number one most noticeable thing you see crop history a lot of these woods are on the side hills and they've got a field up top that's you know was put to corn for years they've got erosion through the woods and then you you, you couple all that together with that 
the deer populations that we carry on the land now and the invasive species that have moved in kind of as a result of, I guess, you, urban sprawl and, and a few bad conservation management decisions. And you get this combination of factors that creates this perfect storm of factors that result in very degraded woods. And so, Tom, when you go look at, uh, say, a, a landowner's woods and you're trying to make that decision about what to do with it, you're doing an inventory on it, is it obvious that a stand is degraded? Is it sometimes somewhere in between? How do you kind of, what do you look at or what do you inventory to try to figure that out in order to move forward with a prescription for that landowner? Yeah, so there's a continuum. Not every stand that's degraded is the same like like anything in forestry. There's heavily degraded and I guess there's less degraded. Um, for me, you, you can walk in and you can know right away, but what gives it away is obviously what your overstory is, what the composition of the species are, um, you know, the density, the stocking, what the trees look like. Um, and then of mm -hmm. course the under, understory, uh, I guess, your first thoughts, usually I'm when I'm in a, a stand of private, a private landowner stand, I'm in there with them. So mm -hmm. <laughs> usually I walk into a stand like that and it's heavily degraded and, and I got to kind of put a positive swing on it first right. before I put a negative connotation to it because they just spent their hard earned cash on this thing and they don't know there's a problem until you tell there's a, tell them there's a problem. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, I kind of try to start with positive, you know, what, what we can work yep. with and what we can go from there with. with. I know I've, I've struggled with that too, working with private landowners is, is uh, kind of how do you break that to them? And they're a lot of times really proud, happy new landowners. And, uh, you know, you don't want to, to turn them off to forest management for sure. Right, uh, exactly. But you also want to give them a realistic picture of what they have to work with and where what they need to do. And so, so yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about is kind of walking that line of being diplomatic with them, keeping them enthusiastic to do work. You know, and honestly, most stands, I would say 95% of them, there's a positive future in outcome. You know, there's, it may take longer for some, but the soils, you know, the topography, everything lends itself to growing excellent timber. We just got to turn, turn things around and start making some, some positive gains instead of losses all the time. So I, I honestly feel that way when we walk with folks that we can, we can get them in the right direction and we can end up with a positive outcome. Some might take 25, 40 years. Others might only take 10 years to get to, get to where we need to be, but we always usually can have some success. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are there common factors, Tom, when you're looking at these sites and you're saying, okay, let's put that, let's put this uh, stand in the right order and start it going. Are there certain things you say, here is where we're going to start. Are there certain starting points for landowners that would be common among degraded stands? Yeah, for sure. Like usually when I walk in with them, it's like, first we got to, you know, we have to have an overstory we can work with that will produce some, well, you know, some type of regeneration potential. And then second, and then if we have that, we've got to look at the understory. Is there invasive species? Usually start there. What's the, what's the floor, florist floor look like? If we got invasive species, we probably got to address that first. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, we got to address that, that mid-level shade or that mid-level story of the timber. You know, that I always call it the two inch to 12 inch category in our world. So 
we got to address that stuff. And what does that composition look like? And is that beneficial or just in the way, so to speak? And then we can work on the overstory. But, you know, so often I'm, times I'm brought in there, hey, I'd like to cut some trees. But the only trees that can be cut at this point, are, you know, that they want to cut, that they can make any money on are the, probably the desirable ones we need as a resource to, you know, even have any regenerative capability going forward. And I know Brad mentioned that these stands can be or oftentimes are really variable, just the way that they've been treated. So does that make it more complicated to come up with a prescription for that landowner? Like, does there have to be, you know, multiple prescriptions within a prescription because that stand changes so much? For sure. I mean, in Southwest Wisconsin, every, every slope's different. You know, the topography is so varied if you have 40 acres, it's possible to have six different areas you need to work in and they're all going to need a little different twist. So, but the th the other thing, you can't fix it all in one, what took 50 years or hundred years to ruin, you can't fix it all in three years. Mm -hmm. So you got to kind of pick your battles and you got to read the land as much as you got to read the landowners you're working with and see where they're at, you know, meet them where they're at on the land, if both financially and then from an energy level and then from, what the what the land capabilities are so it's never easy but it is extremely variable yeah and i think we'll get into we'll kind of pick your brain a little bit about what you do trying to you know work along that line toward restoring you know some of these sites but how do you define where so when you're walking through there you talk to the landowner and you go you know what this is too far gone like you're going to just have to start over or or some, you know, where it's basically, you can't really rehabilitate it anymore. It's, you got to do something severe on the site. Yeah. So as a forester, and you know this, Brad, we have that, oh, the Uggs and the eggs, you know, the, yeah. uh, the acceptable, acceptable growing stock and the unacceptable growing stock. And if we go through there and took plots, probably 50% of the stands would be, let's start over, you know, right. some way let's start over. But the landowners aren't on the same page with let's start over. Uh, a lot of times, I think the average landowner owns less than 50 acres. I think it's 40 acres or something like that. <laughs> so to start over on their half of their wood, 20 acres would be like not something they got into it. So um, you have to take into account how far they're willing to go. But if if, if you do have to start over, you know, then you've got to still try to get something on the forest floor that's positive. So you're always still starting with the the, the forest floor part. And if you've got, if you've got trees in the overstory that you can work with, maybe you can get some natural regeneration. If not, you got to bring in the planting. Yeah. So, so really just taking a long-term approach to that. So you're starting over might be just like what we're doing, but maybe over a longer period of time. So yeah. Sometimes starting over means, you know, okay, we're going to take out the understory in the first 10 years. We're going to, have to plant probably, but yeah, like you say, it's going to be a, could be a 25 year venture starting mm -hmm. over. Preferably like to do it sooner, but it's not always the case. Yeah. Well, and sometimes that landowner, as you said, doesn't want to do the whole thing at once. So do you get them going on, you know, just smaller areas or, you know, kind of just get them started? Um, see some success hopefully and then move from there yeah that's 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 what you have to do you have to um first you got to get buy-in from them they don't always want to don't always believe that what you're selling is going to actually work so mm -hmm. um, 
you pick a spot that you think you can succeed in. I, I try to always sell to the landowners. My mantra is work on your best first, you know, kind of you'll have the most success when your, your inputs will be, you know, your inputs will be, you'll receive the most benefit and gain from working on your best first. So I try to help them find their best and work from there. So often people see, once they discover what invasive species are or, or say box elder trees, they, they want to go to that worst spot on the farm and start working there. What the reality is they should start in their best stand and make sure that's taken care of and then work backwards. So that's, that's one of the things you try to do first and yeah, pick a, Pick an amount that's doable, you know, pick a project that's doable and, and try to help them to have success. And once they have success, they're going to start calling you about projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you say start with their best, you're talking about, uh, you know, areas or stands where there's still some acceptable growing stock in the overstory. Yeah. And trying and maybe trying some prescriptions within that to make sure that that is in a good condition to grow. Right. Put that in a better place. Um, usually over a parcel, there's going to be an area, well, we talked that may have been high graded more than others because there was really great timber there and now it doesn't have anything. They missed maybe a steep slope, had beautiful red oak, but back in the day they wanted to get the easy stuff. So harvest, they, they took the the easy timber, the easy, it was easier to harvest and they left some other. So that might be a place that we start sometimes um, if you're away from the trails and away from the edge, the invasive species aren't, haven't moved into those areas. So that might be a place to start, you know, okay, we're going to start here and work backwards, keeping the invasive species out of this area of the woods mm. and then work backwards. So it kind of goes against you. you. You logically think, let's go get rid of all that, that epicenter of invasive species, but you, you can't usually get it from fence line to fence line. So you got to, you got to think smaller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Play to your strengths. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So in those areas, kind of just thinking about this logically as a progression. So in those areas then that uh, are more degraded, you know, maybe they don't have any good overstory trees left in them. Maybe they have an invasive problem and you do have to start over. You said keeping seed trees, if there are you know, maybe are some availability for natural regeneration, but what's your experience with planting in those situations? Well, I think a good example is um, an easy one to kind of describe is um, planting works for starters, planting works, artificial regeneration works. Uh, box elder is a, a good example. We have a lot of these box elder draws and it's not really an ideal tree to have from a productivity standpoint. It's not really, um, ideal to have from a timber management standpoint, wildlife generally. So we, what we know is box elder is a great indicator species that the soils that it grows in are great. They're excellent. But so we have to convert those sites. So what we do is we go plant black walnut, which grows like crazy in those sites in the understory. And then we go and we cut and treat the, all the box elder, just knock them down. A lot of times landowners goals are, well, I love wildlife. I want wildlife habitats. So you can, you know, help them realize that. And when they mean wildlife, they mean deer. Um, so you can help them realize that, that goal by saying, well, we're going to plant these walnut. We're going to get a better tree species going forward. We're going to knock all these box elder down. It creates real carnage on the forest floor kind of habitat that deer love for 15 years. And, and then you end up with a much better stand going forward. So that sort of thing works. Um, if oak is always a goal, people always want to regenerate oak. Um, 
which is it's a whole nother 10 podcasts really to discuss but okay. as far as in a simplistic standpoint if they don't have enough oak in the overstory we can still try to regenerate an oak stand by planting oak and then opening up the overstory put in a whole bunch of sunlight on the forest floor and we can have success doing that as long as we eliminate the invasive species and eliminate the mid tolerant the mid level shade and get enough light on the forest floor so we can, we can have success doing that too yeah. mm-hmm it provided one, one, one big giant factor is kept in control. And we all know what it is, right? That causes <laughs> the most problems for any of us from a forestry pr- perspective. You guys know what it is, right? Yeah. Well, Brad, white-tailed well, deer, not Brad. Brad yeah, I was deer. Say, okay. So that's the, that's the, that's the one I was going to ask. So yeah, you're planting. So, and, and, and you want to recover from degradation. You want to do these things. So deer really complicate that recovery how do you deal with that well deer is is like the sink when i meet with folks deer are the single most detrimental factor to most of their efforts and not not usually invasive species not in woody invasives um it's just deer um and it's usually creates a real i don't know inner strife amongst the landowners because they love the deer so much but they also they get to the point where they want to regenerate their trees and it's almost like we're back to the grazing era right it's almost like we got cows in the woods again because we have so many deer creating these problems and we we spend so much time and money trying to avert deer because you go to all the we 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 have really good science behind what we need to do with regenerating trees and you but you throw the deer in and then minimizes our success and so you're and, and you've got this really unique perspective, Tom, because you're at the epicenter of CWD in the upper Midwest, chronic wasting disease. So has that played into this factoring and in, in how you deal with your management? So you're trying to recover from degraded. Now you have deer and now we have CWD. Has that had any implication yet? I think it's made the conversations a lot more lengthy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It Ultimately, to this point, it hasn't limit. It, it may very well. I don't know if it'll solve the problem with deer, uh, deer brows, but it, there's still the studies that are out there and there's a lot of literature that says that the population may plummet eventually. But right now it's, it's, it's still the same problem as we've always had because even though we're in the heart of chronic wasting disease and we should be limiting our deer predation or deer numbers, we don't seem to be having any luck doing that. Yeah. So all the, all the science points towards us having a reduced herd to also limit the spread of CWD. And that's really where we'd like to get, but we're not there yet. Yeah. So thinking about like tips and tricks on some of this stuff. And I know Greg and I always talk about these things. So, so you've got a toolbox of intermediate practices and regeneration systems you can use. And now we pull maybe some of those pieces out because we can't use them because of deer. Are there, are there systems that you say, hey, this tends to work in my area for oak, or at least giving me like maybe a more diverse regeneration or gives me trees that may not have problems with deer? Are there certain things you tend to recommend for, uh, over others from what you've had experience with? Yeah. So, you know, you over the, year, over the years, we planted enough oak trees and had enough to get eaten that I'm not like the smartest guy in the room, but I know that after I plant enough red oak and they all get eaten, I'm not going to plant anymore. Yeah. So, um, in Iowa County, we won't really plant red oak. We'll plant white oak and bur oak. Um, the other thing that works is is we do, you know, direct seeding works in open areas. 
So having seen that work, um, it, the larger the cuts we can do, the better. I think that has a, a marked effect on our success. So most people don't really like to cut hard, you know, to regenerate oak. But if you do want to regenerate oak or hardwoods in general in our area, um, if you can cut harder, create larger areas of re larger gaps, larger clear cuts, you'll have more success. Um, of course, we work with all, we've tried all the, the tubes and the cages and the soaps and the hot sauce and the egg mixtures and human hair. We've tried it all to limit with limited success on all of them. And, and then now I think we're, we're starting to play a little bit more with the input of using some prescribed fire in there too, as well. Is that in the oak regeneration realm, Tom, where you're playing around with the prescribed fire? Yeah. So that's, yeah. And we kind of get accused of being oak foresters. Um, but the reality is, so in, in Iowa County, it's when we talk about regenerating, we're usually trying to regenerate oak stands. We don't have a lot of uh, Northern hardwoods, but if you jump the river and get in Richland County, I think regeneration is quite a bit easier because they're dealing with a lot more Northern hardwoods. So yeah, I, I'm usually talking in terms of mm -hmm. oak hickory, central hardwood, those type species, along with the walnut. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Tom, I can only imagine that, you know, like trying to write a prescription or develop a marking guide based on some of this has got to be really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's not boring. No. <laughs> it's, um, the, the, the management's not boring. Um, it's not like just cutting an aspen stand. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's not easy. Each stand is uniquely different. Each property is uniquely different. Um, but, but I think overall, this, the principles are the same. You know, you got to have your overstory that will, you know, give you enough and they got it. It's got to be a healthy overstory that will provide enough seed for regeneration, whether it's, you know, whether you're trying to regenerate walnut, oak, hickory, or, or even Northern hardwoods. And then you've got to have a understory that will accept that. And then you got to understand the silvics of the species and play with them and to, to get that desired result. So it's, it's always the same principles, but each one's unique and you can't just mm -hmm. say, here's, you know, cut them all. Don't cut them all. Yeah. yeah. I know work. our, you know, some of our colleagues up in Quebec, they have a couple of papers out and they break the stand into what they call micro stands. So their prescriptions get a lot more complicated. They might have, you know, a few different kind of scenarios and then they'll have different treatments depending on those three different scenarios or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Mike Demchek at UW-Stevens Point, Professor Mike Demchek, he's proposed something similar to that that, that I think has application and, and could be good. Tom, when you, when you prepare, when you're working with other foresters, you have a couple people marking that stand. Is it really hard to convey what you want or do you, is it, do you get specific or do you kind of give them more of the guidelines and kind of say, this is what I want, as opposed to here's specifically what I want to see. So are you complex or are you just more broad and general when you try to communicate that stuff? I think it gets pretty complex, pretty specific. I, th I think, it, you know, I don't know, we've been doing it enough years, like usually the foresters I'm working with, they've worked with me enough to know, but, but I think honestly, there's, there's some species that you just don't want to have. So we're pretty specific in that. So we do a lot of species discrimination. And then I'd say we do a lot of, you know, mid-level shade discrimination. So usually the prescriptions, although the whole processes can tend to be pretty complicated, the, the management is, is pretty simple. 
we want to get rid of bittern hickory, we want to get rid of all these undesirable species to put enough sunlight on the forest floor that we'll get some desirable regeneration to come. And, you know, we also have, and then of course the invasives, those are pretty carte blanche. We try to take them out. Tom, if you're setting something like a rehabilitation prescription up, obviously the trees that you're wanting to get rid of are not high value trees and are many of these commercial types of operations or do you have to look at doing this non-commercially in your area and how does that factor in yeah so that's another major huge factor in, in how we operate we don't we don't have any markets for our low-grade wood we don't have any markets for any any product in the two inch to 12 inch size class we really have minimal markets for some of our undesirable species our our elms our you know our black oak those are low grade products. So that's a huge problem. And, and it's kind of something that we've, we've had to do, deal with for years on both our private lands and our state lands. Mm-hmm. And we've had to get real comfortable with using um, cost share programs with private landowners to, to get that wood cut. We just, if we were a hundred miles north into the east, it would be not even an item of discussion. They can move all that wood, but where we're at, we can't. So mm-hmm. We have to cut that stuff down and lay it on the ground. And, and usually that means either a landowner has to cut it and let most our landowners are over 55, over 65 years old, or they have to hire someone to do it. So it's out of pocket expense. So we've been real fortunate. We have a program that, you know, puts a million and a half dollars annually into the, the hands of private landowners to do that sort of work. But it's just, again, it's just more work. And it sounds to me like it, maybe it's an expansion. Last episode, we had Dan Day on. And he said that oak costs money because you have to you have to do lots of things to get it. It sounds like here maybe rehabilitation costs money or management in some places just takes money. It does. And I, I listened to the podcast with Dan and I thought it was excellent. Basically what Dan's doing for oak, unless you're blessed with northern hardwoods and want to go convert to northern hardwoods, you're basically gonna have to follow what Dan Day does, you know. And you know, whether you use prescribed fire or not, you're still going to have to have those have inputs to change the, the course of history. And, you know, I don't know when you mentioned that um, some different scenarios, you guys are probably familiar with, uh, I don't know, it's a publication that Bill Carlson, you, you guys remember Bill, Bill used to always put it in all his management plans where you get to a crossroads. Is there, are there maple? Are you okay with growing maple? Then you, you know, don't introduce fire or are you, would you like to do oak management? And if you do want to do oak management, you want to introduce fire, you're going to go to the right. It's, it's kind of that way, really with every parcel, you have to have some type of, you know, roadmap, you know, if you want to do this, we're going to do this. If you don't want to do that, we're going to do that. Yeah. And it's all based on what the overstory and what the understory consists of. Yeah. I know John or uh, Bill was real big on uh, Arlen Perky's crop tree management in Eastern hardwoods. And we can put a link to that in the show notes for this. And I think he also used to look at kind of approaching management uh, ecologically. So John Kotar had uh, ecological forest management. I can't remember the exact title of that one, but we can put that in the show notes as well, because I think those are both Mm -hmm. really good. And that brings up something you and I were talking about, Brad, on rehabilitation types of silviculture. There isn't a lot out there, really, that gives a lot of detail because it's challenging and complicated and all these sites are a bit different. I mean... So there's things like, you know, Wayne Clatterbuck's piece we talked about, Ralph Nyland and Laura Kennefeck yep. have put, put some stuff out and out in the east. 
and as I mentioned, Quebec has um, some publications out too. And so we might be able to put some of this stuff on the show notes um, for foresters to take a look at. Um, but there's not a lot out there. And I think some of it comes down to creativity in trying to figure out how to get this stuff done uh, in challenging circumstances. Yeah, I think, Tom, you've been a champion on kind of, because, you know, sometimes you have to tinker, you have to use your best judgment to kind of try that and then see what works and doesn't work. Have you, oh, so let me ask you this question. Sometimes we don't like to, you know, kind of show the warts and all, but what's the, are there systems that just like you started and said, hey, this will work and you found out, no, that doesn't work at all. <laughs> Yeah. Um, adaptable is a word you got to use around here, I suppose. The thing that really we used to put into plans and we used to struggle with trying to do is, is true thinnings. And what we were trying to do was we were trying to thin old stands, you know, and, and extend the rotation. And it just doesn't work. It kind of pushes the can down the road with the problem, so to speak. I don't know if you remember back in the day, Brad, when you, back when you're writing plans for Clark forestry, we would try to do, you get a stand that's really, it's a 120 year old Oak stand and we'll prescribe a thinning. And the thinning is, well, we're going to go out there and take out the, the central hardwoods that have developed in between. Right. Well, that's not really a thinning. That's something else. Um, <laughs> and, and we're going to keep those white Oak. We're going to keep those red Oak longer and hope that something good happens in the interim. So We've kind of come to the grips. I, I had to have hard heart-to-heart discussions with a lot of landowners over the past 10 to 15 years. It's time to start over. And that's really hard to do when you don't own that much land. But yeah. it's truly, sometimes there's just no other place to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used to have a sign on my desk that said, uh, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And I know a lot of those early plans I wrote were like, oh yeah, it's 120, just thin it. And then you never saw the response in the thin trees and you yeah. learn. And so that's kind of the, the beauty of being a forester. You get to learn from what you do too. You do. And you, you guys know as foresters, if you stay at this long enough, your, your ideas change. You, at once what you thought, like I never thought that we would burn the woods. And now I'm telling people, hey, I think your best option is to burn the woods. Yeah. You know, you just, things change. You, I guess you learn. You get better at what you're doing or you like to believe you do and you develop over time. I I also remember this young forester used to always tell everybody, you got to love the one you're with. Right. (laughs) And so if you've got black locusts and all you have is black locusts, Hmm. then you've got to love the one you're with and make it better. I wonder who said that. I, who knows? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. I think when I think about kind of this degraded stand management, I remember Tom, you and I were on a certification audit, I think. We're looking at a public property. Um, I don't remember which one it was, but I remember you saying, well, there's a lot of stuff going on here. None of it's really good. And we just threw the kitchen sink at this. And so (laughs) you kind of talked about all the things you talked about today where, you know, there might've been some, some crop tree releasing where you had decent, decent trees to begin with, um, but you had invasive control. And then there were other areas you're basically regenerating and starting over with supplemental planting. And I don't know, I don't remember if you know, remember that site, but I just, you had a whole kind of list of these different techniques that you used on that piece. Yeah. Oh, I remember it very well. Yeah. That, that's the Love Creek. In fact, the name of this timber sale is the disturbance, <laughs> the disturbance 42, nice. there's 42 acres of disturbed land there, but yeah, that piece there, we mowed invasives. We, 
we basal barked invasives. Um, some parts of it, we did crop to release in the hickory. There's young hickory stand. There's an aspen stand in amongst the thing that we are going to clear cut. And then after we did all that, I never planned on planting it. But I went back and looked at it last spring, and I just I got another project going. We're going to plant 33,000 trees on it because they're just not oh. there. And then we're also I just talked to the wildlife biologists, and we're probably going to in two to three years use fire to run fire through there to make sure that we've got the stand that we want and get rid of some of the other stuff we don't want before we end up letting it go. So, yeah, yeah that one is that one's really indicative of actually of all that we deal with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tom, if you had one piece of advice, so a lot of foresters are new, or maybe they, I think in certain parts of the state or certain parts of the upper Midwest, we all deal with different, you know, amounts of degradation. But if you're a new forester kind of thinking about this, what would be the first piece of advice you would give someone saying, you know, like they're not sure to do in this, not sure if the stand is degraded or what they should do if they see degradation, what would be the first piece of advice you would give them? Yeah. I mean, the first piece of advice, if it, when I, when we're, when I, when I have, young foresters come down here and work. The first thing I tell them is, you know, um, there's not one size that fits all, you know, so don't, don't have any preconceived notions about what you're going to do before you get in there and take a look at it. Cause one, you know, you're not going to be able to just throw one silviculture prescription at the whole thing. It's not going to work. And then, you know, you have to really be patient because it's mm -hmm. not going to happen overnight. So those two things are, are valuable. And then just, to, there's just no substitute for experience and getting in there and working in them. And I don't know, it's, that's about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think well, that, that time perspective is a really important one that uh, we oftentimes are in a rush to see results. And, and uh, sometimes you have to be patient and let things unfold in these stands. And I think you said it right in the beginning, Tom, the idea here is not to solve this all in one go. Um, but to put it, put those stands on a better track so that uh, in the future they develop, uh, you know, maybe some of that quality and more of that ecosystem functioning that we want um, and are on the road to recovery. Yeah. And I think the big, like I'll, I'll be asked, I was asked by a landowner a couple of weeks ago, is there before, you know, he was going to, I told him, we always have that fundamental Thing that we want them to do is get a plan so you can get them on the right track to get a plan sometimes it takes a while to get that plan and they always landowners always want to know what can i do you know over the next year before i get that plan and that i with it that won't damage it I, well the biggest thing you, you can do is what you just did you met with a forester and you're not going to have this thing destructively logged so that you know a lot of these things they're on the road to recovery at some stage but to throw in a destructive logging again like number two or three on the land is something mm -hmm. that is almost like the death blow. So, you know, I always mention to the landowners, hey, we're, we're on the path to recovery. As long as you don't go, you know, hiring someone to high grade this thing, we'll get there and these things will get better. And you, I notice all the time, like you go look at um, lands that are in managed forest law, lands that are not in managed forest law. And the lands that are in managed forest law, they've been under management for, oh, up to, you know, some of them 25 years, yeah. some 50 years. Those are where the best timber is. And, and why is that? It's not necessarily that they all were harvested correctly, but they weren't destructively logged and they weren't grazed anymore. So I think those are, I take those messages, like I take that to heart that we don't have to always, you know, work over every single acre of land every two years, but we do have to um, 
have a plan and 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 not go in there and allow some destructive things to happen. No, be flexible, well, be patient. I think those are words to live by. Well, Tom, this was really good conversation. I knew it would be, and I really appreciate kind of you given your experience that you've accumulated and hopefully we'll have more of these conversations in the future. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks guys. And uh, maybe we could have one of these conversations on one of Southwest Wisconsin's trout streams. Yeah. But first I need, I need more flies. That's the, you got the clinker. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great idea, Tom. I keep losing them in the trees. So (laughs) you'll have that. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Tom. Yeah. Thanks you guys. Yep. Catch you later. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. Want to know when the next episode comes out? Subscribe with your favorite podcast platform. If you have any ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. You can reach us at UWSP's Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing wfc at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or comment if you like. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. Thanks, Brad. And thanks to everybody for listening. And as always, we'd like to thank our team. We'd like to thank Haley Freider, our editor-in-chief, Noah Lemaid, our IT guru, and a special thanks to Paul Freider for our theme music. And of course, UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. Take care, everybody.